Good morning. Sorry you could see you here in church this morning. If you, uh, this is your first time here, if you weren't here last week, uh, we're doing a two-part series on the issue of women. Last week we looked at Genesis particularly and talked about what the Bible has to say about women from Genesis. This week we're look, going to look at two particular texts. They've sometimes been called terror texts. One is 1 Corinthians 11 and the other one is 1 Timothy 2 that was read to us. If you are visiting, can I just tell you this is not normal for a Sunday morning. So normal service will be resumed as of next week. So I want you to imagine that you're more in a lecture theater than you are in church, but that's not normal. That's not what we normally do, so please come back. I will do my very best to stick to the notes, so I hope you've got these notes here. So again, that's not normal, but I will try to do that this morning, and you will need probably a pen or something to write with. Last thing I want to say before we get into this is, as I said last week, particularly to those of you who are women, women, you are not an issue. Sometimes I get the impression, like I said last week, sometimes I get the impression that when we start to talk about a subject like this, what is the position of women in the church? What roles should women have or not have in the church? What is their position? It sounds as if, women, you are an issue and a problem. You are not an issue. You are people made in the image of God, and God cares about you and loves you. And whatever else you get out of what we're doing over these two weeks, I want you to leave knowing that. God loves you. You are not an issue. And you are not a problem to God. Okay, let's get into this. I'm going to pray and then we'll start to bat through. So you need to turn to page two of these Booklets. By the way, uh, last week is now finally up on the web. We need to sort out some problems about the size of our recordings because we're having problems uploading them. Uh, we'll do our very best to get today's up on the podcast, rather, as well as the web, um, as early as possible this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is a message of liberation. It's about setting us free. It's about setting us free because it deals with our hearts and changes us from the inside out. It's not about rules and it's not about regulations. It is about the freedom to follow our hearts because our hearts have been captured by the greatest love of all. Father, as we deal with these issues this morning from the texts in the New Testament and these two passages in particular, Father, please give us insight and understanding. Give us clarity. Please work by your Spirit in our hearts, we pray, as well as our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Three of the things that New Testament writers are grappling with. First one is this. The gospel changes or transforms or touches everything. So how does the gospel change what's given to us in creation? Because we live in this age, this creation, not in the new creation that is to come. 
And there are certain things about living in this creation, as opposed to the age to come, which are a given to us. Take marriage, for example. Marriage is a given in creation. But there will be no marriage in the new creation. So here's, here's the question. How does the gospel transform marriage? And that's one of the things the writers of the New Testament are grappling with. And when you read Ephesians 5 about marriage, that is exactly the issue that Paul is dealing with. He is exploring how the gospel transforms marriage, which is a given in creation. By the way, we also need to, to remember that there is a trajectory to the gospel. You, you know, that story of the mustard seed that we looked at the other week, when the gospel comes, it's just a beginning. If I can change the metaphor, it's like dropping a small pebble into a pond. It looks so tiny. But the ripples go out and out and out and out. There is a trajectory to the gospel. There is a cumulative impact of the gospel. So how does the gospel transform creation? Secondly, is culture. How is the Christian to live in a particular cultural moment? Because we live in a cultural moment. How does the gospel impact how we are to live and think in this moment? But the Bible isn't written to this moment, is it? So in 1 Timothy 2, which we'll look at later, Paul is writing to a leader in first century Ephesus. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but we do not live in first century Ephesus and you don't have to think very deeply to realize the first century Ephesus is different in all kinds of ways from 21st century Willoughby. For example, the first century is a slave economy. Now, I know some of you work so incredibly hard that you think you are slaves. And I know that slavery still exists, especially sexual slavery. And I know that there are all kinds of things across the world where people are in effect in slavery. But, bear with me, in 21st century Sydney, we live in a capitalist economy. We do not live in a slave economy. So when the New Testament is written, it's written to them. And one of the issues they're grappling with is that in their cultural moment... Slavery is huge. It is the economic system. It's estimated that about a third of the population in the Roman Empire in the first century were slaves. So it's written to them. It's for us, but it's to them first. And we need to understand that that the writers of the New Testament are asking the question, how does the gospel impact what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in that cultural moment? For example, where there's slavery. So in 1 Peter and chapter 2 and verses 18 to 21, it's in the text there, Peter is addressing the issue of slavery. And he's addressing the issue of how do you live as a slave, as a true follower of Jesus Christ, 
when you are working for a, a master who is not only not a Christian, but is abusive to you. He beats you up. How are you to do that? I was sitting in a, a Bible study group not all that long ago, and we were looking at 1 Peter 2, and we came to this passage about slavery, and I was leading the group, so I asked the question, so what are we supposed to do with this? What do we learn from this? And people started to say things like, well, I think it means that when I go to work and my boss is abusive to me, then I should just suck it up. And, and I think if my boss even is physically abusive to me, then I should just bear it because that's to follow the example of Christ, which is what Peter's talking about here in, 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 in 1 Timothy 2, verse 18 following. I went ballistic. <laughs> that was then... If your boss is abusive to you, you go to HR. You do not think that you are honoring Christ by allowing a boss to be physically, emotionally, or mentally abusive to you. Does that mean that 1, Timothy, 1 Peter 2 has nothing to say to us? It has lots to say to us. We are to follow the example of Christ, but we need to bear in mind that that was then, that cultural moment, and this is now. And by the way, one of the reasons why there is no slavery in Australia is because of the gospel. Because it changed how people think about human beings. There is no slave or free. Everybody's equal in the sight of God and the gospel brings an equality. It doesn't matter how much money you've got, what sex you are. The gospel brings equality of value to everybody. Or take the church. In Ephesus and most of the places in the New Testament in the first century, as far as we can work out, most churches meant in households. By the way, do not think family in Willoughby in the 21st century, point. Whatever it is, children, you know. Households involve lots of people. That's the context, the cultural context. How do you do church in a household context? We have to ask the question, how do we do church in the 21st century? But we're not meeting in households. The Bible is written to them. It's for us, but it's to them. And as we'll see later on, we need to be really careful not to imagine that we live in the first century. We do not. So they're grappling with that. What does it mean to be a Christian in the culture in which they live? And thirdly, they're looking to the future. I want you to imagine that you're in the church in Corinth, meeting in different houses. houses and one of them is the household of Chloe, who's a woman. Presumably, she has some money because she is the head of the household. Interesting. You're having some problems, and so you write a letter to Paul, and you say, hey, Paul, we're having some problems in the church in Corinth, in our church, and uh, here they are. What should we do? What do you think? And Paul writes back and says, this is what I think. This is what it's about. This is what it means. And by the way, I'm going to come and sort you out. Isn't that great? So imagine if you're a church leader in Corinth, 
Well, it depends which side of the fence you're on, of course. I mean, you, you either look forward to Paul coming and say, wow, I'm so pleased because I don't have to make those difficult decisions, or you think, oh, bother. Paul's coming. Trouble. Well, it's great as long as Paul's around and Peter's around and the other apostles and the foundational leaders of the church are around. But what do you do when they're not there? I mean, they're not here now, are they? They're, I cannot tell you the number of times when, in effect, I would have wished that I could simply phone Paul up and say, could you come down, please? <laughs> there are some decisions I need to make I don't know, I don't want to make because there's some difficult issues. There are some problems I don't know how to solve and there are some things I don't know the answer to, but hey, I give it all to you. <laughs> what do you do when Paul's no longer around? Which is what letters, how letters like 1 Timothy, which Karina read to us, and 2 Timothy and Titus function. That is how they function. Because Paul is writing to, in 1 Timothy, to Timothy, his designated church leader, and saying, this is what I would do if I were here, but I'm not here. And it gives us an insight into what you do when Paul's not here anymore, which is really helpful for us. So those are three things the writers of the New Testament are grappling with. Just some quick comments about how we handle the Bible I keep going on about this. Those of you who've known me for any length of time, I say, when we come to read the Bible, this is the, page three, it's context, 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 context. What's the context in terms of the, what comes before and afterwards? What are the words on either side? What's the slightly bigger picture? So if we're looking at 1 Timothy and we're looking at a particular passage like chapter 2, we say, what came before? What comes afterwards? How does it fit in with the book as a whole? And then how does 1 Timothy fit in with other things that Paul writes? And how does that fit in with the rest of the New Testament? And how does that fit in with the Old Testament? And all that kind of stuff. Context, 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 context. Number two, consistency. I believe, and I hope you do too, because that's what, this is what Christians believe, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. God and therefore has divine authority. It is God's word to us, written by human beings, not dictated, written with particular styles and particular types of literature through different personalities, but nevertheless, God was so outworked by the Holy Spirit that we can read the Bible and say this is God's word to them for us. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things I love in other people is consistency. I like to know that what people say is consistent across time and across places and situations. Don't you, don't, don't you find it incredibly frustrating when people are inconsistent? I, I like that in other people. I, I, I struggle with it myself sometimes because we all do, but I, I, just, I like consistency. It's a sign of integrity, amongst other things, isn't it? Question. Is the Holy Spirit consistent? That's a rhetorical question. And there is only one answer to that question, and the answer is yes. 
This is the spirit of the living God. And that means that when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul in Corinthians or elsewhere to say what he said, and when he inspired other people in the New, Old, in the New Testament writings, then there's going to be consistency. We need, to, we need to believe that the Bible is consistent with itself. So what did we see last week? Well, we saw something about the way that Jesus handles women. Oh, it's, that's a terrible expression, isn't it? But, but the, 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 the relationship between Jesus and women. Looked at some examples last week. So what's going on in 1 Timothy 2? It has to be consistent with that. It has to be consistent with women as the witnesses and messengers of the resurrection. It has to be consistent with the fact that the gift of the Spirit and on the day of Pentecost is to both men and women. Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, in the last days, God says, and Peter's quoting from the Old Testament, from Joel the prophet, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So whatever Peter means when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach, has got to be consistent with that. Because otherwise what we're saying is the Holy Spirit is not consistent. And then the gifts of the Spirit are poured out. There is nowhere that I know of in the New Testament that says gifts are apportioned on the basis of gender. Nowhere. And then we get some examples. For example, Aquila and Priscilla, a man and a woman, teaching Apollos, a man. We get Phoebe in Romans 16 taking Paul's letter to Rome. So she's his delegate, his apostolic delegate. She takes the letter of Romans to the Roman church. No doubt the people there read it, the recipients, those who were in leadership in the church, they read it because that's what happened when you took a letter to somebody. The recipient would read it. But one of the other things about taking the letter is you are there to explain and to answer questions. She is, Phoebe is, Paul's delegate. It's got to be consistent with things like that. So the Bible's got to be consistent. We need to read it in context. Three, simplicity. You know, there are some people, and the right answer is always the most complex answer. You come across people like that. They just love complexity. Any problem, and they will immediately move towards the most complex answer imaginable. Here's the principle. Go for the simplest explanation first. The simplest explanation may not be the right one, but work very hard to dismiss it before you go to the more complex ones. And finally, in interpreting the Bible, some passages are clearer than others. Peter recognizes that in his second letter. Writing about the letters of Paul, he says there are some things Paul writes that are hard to understand. And I've often thought, I'm so pleased you said that because if you're having problems, <laughs> it makes me feel a whole lot better. 
But he then goes on to say it's really important you handle those passages carefully because it's easy to distort them. Some things are more difficult than others. And in 1 Corinthians 11 in particular and 1 Timothy 2, these two passages, perhaps almost more than anywhere else in the New Testament, these are difficult passages. Everybody says they're difficult. So here's a principle. Don't put more weight on a passage, on a text, than it can bear. Put more weight on the things that are clear and less weight on the things that are not so clear. To put it another way, we try to understand what's clear first and then understand what's not so clear in the light of what is clear. Are you with me? Those are things all by way of background. Now I want to look at two what are known as terror texts. So please turn over the page to page four. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and then we'll have a look at 1 Timothy 2. I'll read 1 Corinthians 11 and then we'll have a look at it. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came out from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anybody wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I want you to notice that there is an interplay of three things here. One is creation, the givenness of male and female, and probably of marriage, because this is probably about husband and wife. So verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Where's he alluding to? It's Genesis 2, isn't it? It's about creation. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. But then there's culture. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered. A woman who prays with her head uncovered. Women having their head shaved. If she doesn't have her, hair, her head covered, 
then it's like having a hair cut off. It's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Now, there's a whole debate about what the head coverings are, but that's cultural. Having a head covering signals something in that culture. So those women who want to go and shave your heads today, just fine. That was then, this is now. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about how does the gospel impact the culture at the time? How are you to live in a way that's consistent? So we've got creation, we've got culture, and then we've got gospel. What's the impact of the gospel? Verse 22, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also is man born of woman, but everything comes from God. In the Lord. Do you notice? That's about the impact of the gospel. So you've got that interplay of creation, culture, and gospel. There are all kinds of questions about this passage. It's a really difficult question. Is it man and woman or husband and wife? Probably husband and wife. What's the meaning of head? It's clearly a metaphor, but sometimes it's used literally. The head. What does that mean? What are the head coverings? There are all kinds of discussions about that, including some very bizarre ones. What does authority over her head mean? In your translation, I think it says the sign of authority, or in some translations, certainly it says the sign of authority, but actually it just says have authority. And what on earth have the angels got to do with this? Page five. First thing to say that this passage has nothing at all to do with leadership. It's about roles, uh, it's about head coverings, it's not about roles. Paul doesn't say anything about what men and women should or should not do other than address the issue of head coverings. And he assumes that women can prophesy and pray as the church meets. This is about head coverings. So what's going on? Well, I want to suggest a number of things. Number one, Paul is keen that gender distinctiveness is retained. We looked at that last week. And particularly the relationship between men and women in marriage. And so that there's some culturally appropriate way of displaying that in the way that we worship. That's what he seems to be concerned about. The gospel does not destroy creation. It may transform some things, but it doesn't destroy it. The gospel is not against creation. God has invested an awful lot in his creation. It's called the incarnation. So he really cares about it. Secondly, this is about relationships of honor and shame. This use of head is... Metaphorical, sometimes it is uh, the real head, a man's head, a covering on the head, and so on, shaving the head. But it's also a metaphor. You notice everybody has a head. Man, Christ, woman, man or husband, and Christ, God. And so he says in verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now what's that about? Oh, well, some people say, well, that's about the man has to take leadership. Well, maybe, but it's not there in the passage. This is about honor and shame, and it's about everybody has a head to whom they relate. So think about it like this. If you're, and that's about glory. It's about glory, giving glory to, or the glory of, which we'll come to in a moment. So if you're in a marriage, if you're a woman, 
you, you can honor your husband, bring honor to him, or you can bring shame to him, can't you? There are all kinds of ways that you can do that. So in a marriage relationship, the way that a woman behaves, what she does, can affect the husband because she's in that relationship. We'll look at this a little later on. So imagine that. Here's a first century Corinthian reading this and saying, yeah, well, well the, the, the woman is, I'm the head of the woman. Absolutely right. She brings glory to me or shame. And what about the man? Well, you're the head of the household. Or you're, you're the husband. And, and typically men don't answer to anybody, do they? I mean, the emperor's the head, but hopefully he's not around too often. And you may have a patron to, to whom you're in relationship, but you know, you're the man. <laughs> and what does Paul say? Hey guys, the woman's just, you're just the head of the woman. She can bring shame or honor to you, but you can bring shame or honor to Jesus Christ. Step up. Do you see what that does? We're all in relationships where we can bring honor and shame, and that's what's picked up in, so this has nothing to do with leadership. It's to do with relationships of honor and shame, which is what Paul picks up in the next section. The man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What's all that about? Well, some people say, well, you see, it's about leadership. See, the man is to take leadership. Because the woman is made for the man. Well, let's go back to Genesis 2, which is what Paul's referring to. How does it work? I think it works like this. Adam has been shown all the animals, all the creatures, and there's nobody who's worthy to be this helpmate. And then God brings Eve along. And he says, wow. And he falls in love. And he's willing to do anything for that woman because she is his glory. And he will sacrifice anything for her. A man will leave his father and mother and attach himself to his wife. This isn't about leadership or subservience. This is about the woman being the glory of the man. It's the Bob Dylan song. I'd go hungry, I'd go black and blue, I'd go walking down the avenue to make you feel my love. Guys, did you ever have that moment where some woman walked into your life and you just fell apart? It was as if you'd been taken apart and you would do anything for that woman. You wanted to be with her, you wanted to love her, you're willing to sacrifice anything for her to be with her. She makes you feel 300, 500, 1,000 percent. And not only that, you want other people to see that for some reason or other, miserable little you has been chosen by this amazing creature to be with you. That's what's going on. The woman is the glory of man. 
It's not about hierarchy. And that leads to the power of women. By the way, there seems to be um, an allusion to a non-biblical book called the book of Esdras. Ooh, fancy that. Fancy an, a, an apostle quoting from a non-biblical book. Who would have thought? They didn't live in a cultural vacuum. There were all kinds of pieces of literature being spoken about and around. And one of them is the book of Esdras. Listen to this. Women make men's clothes. They bring men glory. Ding! Men cannot exist without women. If men gather gold and silver or any other beautiful thing and then see a woman lovely in appearance, they let all those things go and gape at her and with their mouths open stare at her and prefer her to gold or silver or any other beautiful thing. A man leaves his own father who brought him up into his own country and clings to his wife. With his wife he ends his days with no thought of his father or mother or his country. Therefore you must realize, men, that women rule over you. Please don't imagine that powerful women only emerged with the feminist movement of the 20th century. One woman launched a thousand ships, and that was rather a long time ago. Many men have lost their minds because of women and have become slaves because of them. Many have perished or stumbled or sinned because of women. He's alluding to that, it seems to me. Oh, not just to me. I'm not the only one who thought of that. Okay. I defer to other authorities. The head coverings. I take it, this is about a cultural expression. The most likely explanation, it seems to me, is this. If you weren't wearing a head covering, or rather a head covering in the first century in Corinth, Uh, would have signaled that you were not sexually available, that you were married, for example. Not to wear a head covering was to signal that you were sexually available. And that's why Paul says, you might as well shave your head, which is what a prostitute might do. do. Do you see what he's saying then? It's not that all women should come to hats in the 21st century. He's simply saying there are cultural ways of signaling some things that bring honor or shame. And a woman can bring shame on her husband. And one of the ways she could bring shame on her husband in Corinth is by not wearing a head covering when she's married. You see how that works? Authority in the angels. The sign of authority, where he talks about the woman having the sign of authority. Some people think that the head covering is itself a sign of authority. Some people think that Paul is saying the woman has the authority to make a decision on this. I'm not sure. The angels, nobody's quite sure what that means. It could be because they're the upholders of the creation order. They're tied in with that. It could be that Paul is signaling that there is a spiritual dimension to what's going on. What we do on earth affects what's happening in heaven, if you like. Or it could be tied in with something to do with judging the angels. I'm, I'm more inclined to think it's the middle one, but I'm not sure. And finally, in case anybody should think this is about superiority or leadership or inferiority, 
Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. This is not about leadership. It's about glory, honor, and shame. That's what it's about. And it's about that interaction of creation and culture. Take a deep breath, turn over. As I say, next week, we get back to normal. You won't have to struggle like this. One Timothy two. The issue here, certainly the value of one Timothy and two Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, is they function like case studies. We get an insight into Paul writing to a church leader, Timothy, in the case of 1 Timothy, and addressing the question, what would Paul do if he were here? So we ought to think of the pastoral epistles as these case studies. They give us an insight because we have to function knowing that Paul is not here. So this is addressing the issue of Christianity after Paul. And Paul is really concerned that the focus should be maintained. And what's the focus? Well, that God our Savior in verses 3 and 4 wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the main focus. Because there is no other hope. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all people. Uh, let me set the context. I'm not going to read through. This is chapter 1 at the bottom of page 6. I'm not going to read it through. Let me just set the context, though. There seems to be some unhealthy teaching circulating in Ephesus, and Paul is saying to Timothy, notice it's not written to the church. No doubt it would be explained to them, but it's not like most of the other letters in the New Testament. It's not written to the church or even the church and leaders. It's written to a leader. And Paul is saying there in verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false teachings any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Something's going on in the teaching in Ephesus that's speculative. It promotes controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. It is empty. It is vacuous. It gives the impression of being of value and meaning, but actually it's completely empty. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. It's pretentious. These people are purporting to be law teachers, but they don't know what they're talking about, and it's unhealthy. It leads people away from the gospel because the gospel will always lead people towards health. Now, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is an example of what so often happens. We want to help people to live as followers of Jesus. How do we do that? We write a list of laws and regulations and rules to be followed. That's what we do. It's so much easier. Because you can tell when people are in and when they're out. And they can tell whether they're in or whether they're out or not. 
And there seems to be something like that that's going on in 1 Timothy. Now, what Paul wants to say here to Timothy is that the law is the last refuge of the scoundrel. And notice there's a speculative element here. See, what do you do when there isn't a law in the Old Testament that deals with the situation you're facing? Well, you have to speculate, don't you? You have to make one up. Paul's argument is this. The function of the law is to expose boundaries. It's for when the wheels fall off. So, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. So, if you're, if you're a habitual stealer, you need the law to remind you that stealing is a bad thing. Is knowing that going to solve your problem of stealing? No. Or, or take murder. The law makes it really clear that if you're a murderer, that's a really bad thing. Don't do it. It's not nice. But is that going to deal with it? No, it simply reminds you of where the boundaries are. That's how the law functions. But the law cannot change people. It can't change their hearts. And Paul gives a personal example. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He was a teacher of the law. He kept the law, but he persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because his heart hadn't been changed. The answer to how we live as Christians is not law, it's a changed heart. So please turn over the page. The goal of this command, he says, is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not law that does it, it's a changed heart, changed motives, changed integrity out of a good conscience, out of a sincere faith. Your conviction comes out of your faith and that leads to love. In other words, the, game, the, the aim of the gospel of healthy teaching is to set people free, to follow their hearts. <laughs> Because if your heart has been captured by Jesus Christ, then to follow your heart is to follow Jesus. But you need the law because it reminds you when you're falling off. But the aim of healthy teaching is not to establish rules. It's to change hearts. That's the context. And then Timothy needs to lead. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that you're, you may, rec by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. I think we have a dithering church leader here, and I know exactly what a dithering church leader is like, because I've done it. I'm not quite sure what to do. I don't have the confidence to do it. I'm worried I might upset people. It's a big decision. The implications are huge. And when you're an assistant minister, I've often said this to staff, when you're an assistant minister, it's so good, because you just push it up. When I was an assistant minister, I... If things were falling apart, I would just push up the problem. At least in my head. Timothy is being told here, you need to act. And in chapter 2, which is the passage we read, which we've now finally reached, he gives some instructions. The first thing is to pray. Whether that means it's the most important or just the first, I'm not sure. 
Um, but he wants people to pray so that people will be saved. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then he addresses men and women. By the way, men and women are always a problem, and the people are always a problem when you're a church leader. And remember, this is addressed to a church leader. In my experience, if there were no people, it wouldn't, there'd be no problems. Except me, which is a bigger problem. He addresses the men, therefore I want men everywhere, this is page 9, to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. It's important that men pray, but it's important that their behavior is consistent with their action of praying. That's what he's saying. Lifting up holy hands is about the quality of their life, their holiness. That's what he's saying. Without anger or disputing. Women, address generally. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold on pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I take it he's addressing a small group of people in the church because expensive designer clothes weren't the kind of thing that most people could afford. But clearly, presumably, there are some women who are drawing attention to themselves. They turn up to worship in the household. Look at me. Designer clothes. Do you know how much this costs? Aren't I important? Look at me. He's saying no. Same principle as with men. What matters is a godly lifestyle. So verse 12, what's important is that they're known for good deeds, for serving others. So that's the general, men and women. Now he goes to the particular. This is where it gets fun. A particular issue a woman should learn in full submission. Let's have a look at the text. Notice it begins with women and it ends with women. Plural. Verse 9, I also want the women... And then at the end of the section in verse 15, if they continue. And in between, he shifts to the singular. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission, but she will be saved through childbearing. Why does he shift? Well, I think it's just a literary technique. It's just a way of sharpening things up, that's all. I don't think you should make too much of it. It just sharpens it up. Notice, too, that there's a repeat of quietness. Now, in the original, it begins with, this is over the page, page 10, in quietness, a woman should learn. And then it ends up, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men, but to be in quietness. That's how it's structured. And then we've got a positive and a negative. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And then the negative, I do not permit a woman to teach. And notice the parallels there in those two verses, learning in verse 11, teach in verse 12, submission in verse 11, and authority in verse 12. How do we handle this? I spent most of my ministry avoiding this passage. So. You, know, you know, before I went on long service, I said... Um, I am going to preach on it. So I came back and I thought, Graham, what on earth were you thinking about? Let me just remind you, this is a really tricky passage. Everybody accepts that. And it seems to me we have to be very careful whatever conclusion we come to about this passage 
not to make it bear more than it's capable of bearing. We need to take it seriously, but don't make it bear more than it's able to. There are all kinds of issues. Is this men and women or is it husbands and wives? What does quietness mean? Well, it almost certainly doesn't mean silence. Teaching and authority, is it teaching? And then a certain kind of teaching, is that, are they two linked or is it two separate things? And Paul uses a very, very unusual word for authority. He doesn't use any of the usual words for authority. This word for authority only ever appears here in the New Testament. And then there's Adam first, Eve's deception, and then what on earth does it mean to be saved through childbearing? Oh. All right. You in one piece? Yep. Is there any life out there yet? Let me just keep going. I'll try and stick to the text. Basically, there are four main views on this passage. The first one is what I want to call the traditional view, which held sway until well into the 20th century, which basically says that men and women are made different. And this is about ability, God-given ability in creation. A woman is made to be subservient to the man. Teaching has to do with authority and it's a woman should not teach. In fact, it is unnatural for a woman to teach a man in the church context or even more widely, some people would say, and take leadership. It can be done, but it should not be done because of the way God has created men and women. That was probably the prevailing view. It was certainly a widespread view into the 20th century. Then there's a neo-traditional view. The neo-traditional view says, ah, oh, men and women are equal. And women can be the most fantastic teachers. In fact, they could be better teachers than men. This isn't about ability. This is about God-given roles. It's just that a woman should not teach or have authority in the church, or some people think more widely, not because they're not capable, but because... That's what God has ordained. It's about roles. Are you with me? So it's similar to the first one, but it's different. It's not about how they were made in creation. It's not about the essence of being a woman. It's not about being natural or unnatural. It is just about God-given roles. Men are to lead and women are to follow, but they're equal. Third view is what I've called the critical view. Some people think that what's going on in the pastoral epistles is that uh, they're beginning to establish structures in the church and there's a push, a pullback to make that, those structures fairly conservative, culturally conservative. And that's why Paul says what he says. And then there's another view that suggests that this has to do with a particular issue in Corinth that Paul is dealing with. Here's my tentative suggestion. It seems to me there is an issue in Ephesus. Something is going wrong. I don't think it necessarily means that women are teaching false teaching. It doesn't say that. But there is an issue. There's an issue relating to men, which we've already seen. There's an issue relating to women in terms of adornment, and Timothy needs to act. And then there's this specific issue that has to do with women. 
And so Paul says, I want women to learn, but they need to learn well. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. What does that mean? Well, I, those of you who've taught children, you get year five straight after lunch, and they've just had a sugar shot, and you can't keep them quiet, can you? They may love your subject, and they may love you, but they're just hyper, and they're not going to learn as much as they would if you'd been teaching them at half past nine. It's about the way that we learn, isn't it? And I think all he's saying here is that women need to learn in a manner that's appropriate to learning. And that may sometimes mean shut up and listen, because that's the way you learn. It's not about submissiveness, do you see? Something about the importance of teaching. We need to remember that teaching in the New Testament is totally, significantly different from teaching today. How do you know whether I'm right or not on this? Or anything? Well, you read your Bibles, you look at the New Testament, you listen to what other people have said, you read commentaries, you listen to podcasts, you talk to other people, you go to theological college, you train. There are all kinds of ways you can do it. What do you do in the New Testament period? There is no New Testament. And so the person who is the teacher is laying down the foundational gospel. Really, really important. They get it right. It's significantly different, which is why Paul is so concerned about how the teaching is done and its authority. Over the page. What's the reason for saying that a man should not, uh, a woman should not teach and a man should? Well, he goes back to Genesis. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Uh, by the way, do you notice it's a trunk? It's, you've got Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, and it's a truncated telling of the story of Genesis 3. The woman was deceived, and then the story stops in 1 Timothy 2. He doesn't go on to say what Adam did later on. However, so the key to understanding I don't permit a woman to teach is the explanation he gives that goes back to Genesis 2 and 3. So what's going on here? Well, let's go back to Genesis. Adam first, what does that mean? Is he saying here, well, Adam first means that Adam has the leadership role. Well, the issue here is to do with teaching and the authority of teaching and the importance of women learning. And if you go back to Genesis 2, it's not at all clear, as we saw last week, that the, the creation of the man first has anything to do with leadership. But it does mean, in Genesis 2, that the man is given the instructions by God first... There's no record of God speaking to the woman, and therefore the woman is dependent on the man to teach her what God has said. Second thing is, Eve was deceived. What's going on there? Well, in Genesis 3, it appears to Eve that there is some source of hidden knowledge that the serpent has access to and is offering to the woman and then the man. And the result is that the woman listens to the serpent and eats from the tree of knowledge and evil. She thinks she's been enlightened. 
to some deeper insight and access to some deeper power. But it's a deception that plunges both of them because the man then follows, but he doesn't follow that up here in 1 Timothy 2. It plunges them both into disaster. What's going on here? My suggestion is this. Paul is drawing back on Genesis 2 and 3 because he's making it clear that women are not a source of superior spiritual insight. That's what he's tackling. And that's why he talks about Adam being made first. The woman does not have special insight into spiritual understanding. And that may well explain why Paul's talking about women not teaching. Because if the background to that is women claiming or men claiming for them, wow, the women, you know, they just see things more deeply than we do. We should listen to them. He's saying, can I just take you back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Because it doesn't work like that, does it? The implication of that is not therefore that men have more superior spiritual insight, because he's dealing with a particular issue in Ephesus. And that, it seems to me, makes more sense of the text. And that fits best with Genesis 2. And it also explains why he wants women to learn. He wants them to move on to maturity, which, by the way, I take it is also a Genesis 2 context, because God has spoken to Adam and taught him he then needs to teach Eve, and I take it he's meant to keep teaching her until she's beyond deception and moves to maturity. He had taught her because she repeats some of what God had said when she speaks to the serpent, but she's not beyond deception. I take it that that's what's going on here. The women are being treated as a source of spiritual wisdom, and Paul's saying, I don't permit that. Okay, that's my best shot at it. Am I right? I'm not sure. Finally, what do we do with this? And then it's coffee time. We still have to deal with this issue of creation, the givenness of creation and culture. Some things remain the same, so marriage is still in force. But things have changed. Culture has changed. The gospel has had an impact on us. We are not living in the first century in Ephesus. So what do we do? Here are some principles. Number one, we need to respect the authority of the text. 1 Timothy 2 is God's word to them for us. It has no less authority now than it did then. We need to respect the authority of the text. But the question is, what do we do with it? And that leads to the next two things. We need to understand that there is a trajectory to the gospel. It's operating in a particular culture at a particular time. But it has implications that will go on and transform things. One of the reasons, as I said earlier on, why we don't have slavery in Sydney and why women have rights that they didn't have is because of the impact of the gospel. And we don't meet in the same kind of household structures that they met in the first century. So we need to recognize the differences. The gospel has changed things, 
and we are the recipients of that change, and we are moving towards even more change as the gospel has more impact. And so we need to recognize this is now and that was then. So we need to have, on the one hand, respect for the authority of the text, but also recognize there are some differences, and we need to hold those two together. So what do we do? Well, I take it that we have to act. We have to ask the question, what would Paul do if he were here, but he isn't here, so we need to act on the basis of the text, and on the basis this is now and not then, and leaders have to lead, we have to make decisions and we have to do stuff. And what it looks like today might be different in many ways from what it looks like in 40 years' time. That's scary, isn't it? We have to act. What we mustn't do is try to recreate the first century and imagine that we're back there. We need to learn from that, but we're not there. The American theologian, uh, Kevin Van Hooser, writes this, The long-term challenge for disciples is to represent the gospel, not by seeking literally to duplicate past scenes, but rather by continuing to follow Jesus in the present in ways that are both faithful and necessarily creative. Creative. That's a bit scary, isn't it? Because we want to be true to the text. But there's a sense in which God is saying to us, go and have fun. <laughs> Work it out. Work it out in a way that's appropriate for your situation, your time, while still bearing in mind what the text says. I heard a roundtable discussion that included Tim Keller, fantastic guy, church leader, who he would take a neo-traditional view but he said something very interesting. He was talking about marriage and not about leadership. But he said, he said this. He said, what that relationship of headship and submission as he sees it in marriage, what it looks like in downtown Manhattan and what it looks like in Mumbai will be significantly different. Quite. Quite. I'm sure you're done. Just over the page, just a couple of things. I suppose there are two areas where we can fall off the rails. One is that we accommodate to our culture. That's really dangerous. Church in every age has been susceptible to that. But there's another danger, and that is that we fail to move on from the first century. And recognize this is now and not then. We need to hold those two things in tension. But above all, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is that God wants people to be saved. And what he doesn't want is to us, for us to run churches on the basis of rules and regulations, but on the basis of changed hearts. Where we're set free to love what we love. Where we're set free to follow our hearts because our hearts have been changed by Jesus Christ and not because we sign up to a set of rules and regulations. We need the rules and regulations because we're all going to wander. But we need to come back to what Paul says right at the beginning of this section. I quoted it. The goal is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
And I promise not to preach out so long as this, as this ever again. In St. Stephen's, you've been so patient. Let me pray. Father, please, would you help us? And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.